0: Section 34 of Essays, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Malone. Essays, Book 2 by Michel de Montaigne. Translated by Charles Cotton. Defense of Seneca and Plutarch the familiarity i have with these two authors and the assistance they have lent to my age and to my book wholly compiled of what i have borrowed from them oblige me to stand up for their honor as to seneca amongst a million of little pamphlets that those of the so-called reformed religion disperse abroad for the defense of their cause and which sometimes proceed from so good a hand that 'tis pity his pen is not employed in a better subject, I have formerly seen one that to make up the parallel he would fain find out betwixt the government of our late poor King Charles the Ninth and that of Nero, compares the late cardinal of Lorraine with Seneca, their fortunes in having both of them been the prime ministers in the government of their princes and in their manners conditions and deportments to have been very near alike wherein in my opinion he does the said cardinal a very great honor for though i am one of those who have a very high esteem for his wit eloquence and zeal to religion and service of his king and his good fortune to have lived in an age wherein it was so novel, so rare, and also so necessary for the public good to have an ecclesiastical person of such high birth and dignity, and so sufficient and capable of his place, yet, uh, to confess the truth, I do not think his capacity by many degrees near to the other, nor his virtue either so clean entire or steady as that of Seneca. Now the book, whereof I speak, to bring about its design, gives a very injurious description of Seneca, having borrowed its approaches from Dion the historian, whose testimony I do not at all believe, for besides that he is inconsistent, that after having called Seneca one while very wise and again a mortal enemy to Nero's vices, makes him elsewhere avaricious, an usurer, ambitious, effeminate, voluptuous, and a false pretender to philosophy. His virtue appears so vivid and vigorous in his writings, and his vindication is so clear from any of these imputations, as of his riches and extraordinary expensive way of living, that I cannot believe any testimony to the contrary. And besides, it is much more reasonable to believe the Roman historians in such things than Greeks and foreigners. Now Tacitus and the rest speak very honorably both of his life and death, and represent him to us A very excellent and virtuous person in all things and i will allege no other reproach against dion's report but this which i cannot avoid namely that he has so weak a judgment in the roman affairs that he dares to maintain julius caesar's cause against pompey and that of antony against cicero now let us come to plutarch Jean Baudin is a good author of our times, and a writer of much greater judgment than the rout of scribblers of his age, and who deserves to be read and considered. I find him, though, a little bold in this passage of his method of history, where he accuses Plutarch not only of ignorance, wherein I would have let him alone, for that is beyond my criticism. BUT THAT HE OFTEN WRITES THINGS INCREDIBLE AND ABSOLUTELY FABULOUS. THESE ARE HIS OWN WORDS. IF HE HAD SIMPLY SAID THAT HE HAD DELIVERED THINGS OTHERWISE THAN THEY REALLY ARE, IT HAD BEEN NO GREAT reproach. FOR WHAT WE HAVE NOT SEEN WE ARE FORCED TO RECEIVE FROM OTHER HANDS AND TAKE UPON TRUST. AND I SEE THAT HE PURPOSELY SOMETIMES VARIOUSLY RELATES THE SAME STORY as the judgment of the three best captains that ever were given by hannibal tis one way in the life of flammius and another in that of pyrrhus but to uh, charge him with having taken incredible and impossible things for current pay is to accuse the most judicious author in the world of want of judgment and this is his example as says he when he relates that a Lacedaemonian boy suffered his bowels to be torn out by a fox-cub he had stolen and kept it still concealed under his coat till he fell down dead, rather than he would discover his theft. I find, in the first place, this example ill-chosen, forasmuch as it is very hard to limit the power of the faculties of the soul whereas we have better authority to limit and know the force of the bodily limbs and therefore if i had been he i should rather have chosen an example of the second sort and there are some of these less credible and amongst others that which he relates of pyrrhus that all wounded as he was he struck one of his enemies who was armed from head to foot, so great a blow with his sword that he clave him down from his crown to his seat, so that the body was divided into two parts. In this example I find no great miracle, nor do I admit the excuse with which he defends Plutarch in having added these words, As, tis said, to suspend our belief, for unless it be in things received by authority and the reverence to antiquity or religion he would never have himself admitted or enjoined us to believe things incredible in themselves and that these words as tis said are not put in this place to that effect is easy to be seen because he elsewhere relates to us upon this subject of the patience of the Lacedaemonian children. Examples happening in his time, more unlikely to prevail upon our faith as what Cicero has also testified before him, as having, as he says, been upon the spot. That even to their times there were children found who, in the trial of patience, they were put to before the altar of Diana, suffered themselves to be there whipped till the blood ran down all over their bodies, not only without crying out, but without so much as a groan, and some till they voluntarily lost their lives. And that which Plutarch also, amongst a hundred other witnesses, relates, that at a sacrifice, a burning coal having fallen into the sleeve of a Lacedaemonian boy, as he was sensing he suffered his whole arm to be burned till the smell of the broiling flesh was perceived by those present there was nothing according to their custom wherein their reputation was more concerned nor for which they were to undergo more blame and disgrace than in being taken in theft i am so fully satisfied of the greatness of those people that this story does not only not appear to me, as to Baudin, incredible, but I do not find it so much as rare and strange. The Spartan history is full of a thousand more cruel and more rare examples, and is indeed all miracle in this respect. Marcellinus, concerning theft, reports that in his time there was no sort of torments which would compel the Egyptians when taken in this act, though people very much addicted to it, so much as to tell their name. A Spanish peasant, being put to the rack as to the accomplices of the murder of Praetor Lucius Piso, cried out in the height of the torment, that his friends should not leave him, but look on in all assurance that no pain had the power to force from him one word of confession, which was all they could get the first day. The next day, as they were leading him a second time to another trial, strongly disengaging himself from the hands of his guards, he furiously ran his head against a wall and beat out his brains. Epicarus, having tired and glutted the cruelty of Nero's satellites, and undergone their fire, their beating, their racks, a whole day together, without one syllable of confession of her conspiracy, being the next day brought again to the rack, with her limbs almost torn to pieces, conveyed the lace of her robe with a running noose over one of the arms of her chair, and suddenly, slipping her head into it with the weight of her own body, hanged herself. Having the courage to die in that manner, is it not to be presumed that she purposely lent her life to the trial of her fortitude the day before, to mock the tyrant and encourage others to the like attempt? And whoever will inquire of our troopers the experiences they have had in our civil wars will find effects of patience and obstinate resolution in this miserable age of ours. And amongst this rabble, even more effeminate than the Egyptians, worthy to be compared with those we have just related of the Spartan virtue. I know there have been simple peasants amongst us who have endured the soles of their feet to be broiled upon a gridiron, their finger-ends to be crushed with the cock of a pistol, and their bloody eyes squeezed out of their heads by force of a cord twisted about their brows, before they would so much as consent to a ransom. I have seen one left stark naked for dead in a ditch his neck black and swollen, with a halter yet about it, with which they had dragged him all night at a horse's tail, his body wounded in a hundred places with stabs of daggers that had been given him not to kill him, but to put him to pain and to affright him, who had endured all this, and even to being speechless and insensible, resolved, as he himself told me, rather to die a thousand deaths as indeed, as to matter of suffering, he had borne one before he would promise anything, and yet he was one of the richest husbandmen of all the country. How many have been seen patiently to suffer themselves to be burnt and roasted for opinions taken upon trust from others, and by them not at all understood I've known a hundred and a hundred women, for Gascony has a certain prerogative for obstinacy, whom you might sooner have made eat fire than forsaken opinion they had conceived in anger. They are all the more exasperated by blows and constraint. And he that made the story of the woman who, in defiance of all correction, threats, and bastinados ceased not to call her husband lousy knave, and who, being plunged over head and ears in water, yet lifted her hands above her head and made a sign of cracking lice, feigned a tale of which, in truth, we every day see a manifest image in the obstinacy of women. And obstinacy is the sister of constancy, at least in vigor and stability. WE ARE NOT TO JUDGE WHAT IS POSSIBLE AND WHAT NOT ACCORDING TO WHAT IS CREDIBLE AND INCREDIBLE TO OUR APPREHENSION, AS I HAVE SAID ELSEWHERE, AND IT IS A GREAT FAULT, AND YET ONE THAT MOST MEN ARE GUILTY OF, WHICH NEVERTHELESS I DO NOT MENTION WITH ANY REFLECTION UPON Baudin. TO MAKE A DIFFICULTY OF BELIEVING THAT IN ANOTHER, WHICH THEY COULD NOT OR WOULD NOT DO THEMSELVES. Everyone thinks that the sovereign stamp of human nature is imprinted in him, and that from it all others must take their rule, and that all proceedings which are not like his are feigned and false. Is anything of another man's actions or faculties proposed to him? The first thing he calls to the consultation of his judgment is his own example and as matters go with him so they must of necessity do with all the world besides dangerous and intolerable folly for my part i consider some men as infinitely beyond me especially amongst the ancients and yet though i clearly discern my inability to come near them by a thousand paces i do not forbear to keep them in sight and to judge of what so elevates them, of which I perceive some seeds in myself, as I also do of the extreme meanness of some other minds, which I neither am astonished at nor yet misbelieve. I very well perceive the turns those great souls take to raise themselves to such a pitch and admire their grandeur and those flights that i think the bravest i could be glad to imitate where though i want wing yet my judgment readily goes along with them the other example he introduces of things incredible and wholly fabulous delivered by plutarch is that Agesilaus was fined by the Ephori for having wholly engrossed the hearts and affections of his citizens to himself alone. And herein I do not see what sign of falsity is to be found. Clearly Plutarch speaks of things that must needs be better known to him than to us, and it was no new thing in Greece to see men punished and exiled for this very thing for being too acceptable to the people, witness the ostracism and petalism. Ostracism at Athens was banishment for ten years, petalism at Syracuse was banishment for five years. There is yet in this place another accusation laid against Plutarch which I cannot well digest, where Baudin says that he has sincerely paralleled Romans with Romans and Greeks amongst themselves, but not Romans with Greeks. Witness, says he, Demosthenes and Cicero, Cato and Aristides, Scylla and Lysander, Marcellus and Pelopidas, Pompey and Agesilaus, holding that he has favored the Greeks in giving them so unequal companions. This is really to attack what in Plutarch is most excellent and most to be commended. For in his parallels, which is the most admirable part of all his works, and with which, in my opinion, he is himself the most pleased, the fidelity and sincerity of his judgments equals their depth and weight. He is a philosopher who teaches us virtue. Let us see whether we cannot defend him from this reproach of falsity and prevarication. All that I can imagine could give occasion to this censure is the great and shining luster of the Roman names which we have in our minds. It does not seem likely to us that Demosthenes could rival the glory of a consul, proconsul, and proctor of that great republic. But if a man consider the truth of the thing, and the men in themselves, which is Plutarch's chief aim, and will rather balance their manners, their natures and parts, than their fortunes, I think, contrary to Baudin, that Cicero and the elder Cato come far short of the men with whom they are compared. I should sooner, for his purpose, have chosen the example of the younger Cato compared with phocion for in this couple there would have been a more likely disparity to the Romans' advantage. As to Marcellus, Scylla, and Pompey, I very well discern that their exploits of war are greater and more full of pomp and glory than those of the Greeks, whom Plutarch compares with them. But the bravest and most virtuous actions, any more in war than elsewhere, are not always the most renowned. I often see the names of captains obscured by the splendor of other names of less desert, witness Labienus, Ventidius, Telesinus, and several others. And to take it by that, were I to complain on behalf of the Greeks, could I not say that Camillus was much less comparable to Themistocles, the Gracchi to Aegis and Cleomenes, and Numa to Lycurgus? But tis folly to judge, at one view, of things that have so many aspects. When Plutarch compares them, he does not, for all that, make them equal. Who could more learnedly and sincerely have marked their distinctions? Does he parallel the victories, feats of arms, the force of the armies conducted by Pompey, with his triumphs, with those of Agesilaus? I do not believe, says he, that Xenophon himself, if he were now living, though he were allowed to write whatever pleased him to the advantage of Agesilaus, would dare to bring them into comparison. Does he speak of paralleling Lysander to Scylla? There is, says he, no comparison, either in the number of victories or in the hazard of battles, for Lysander only gained two naval battles. This is not to derogate from the Romans for having only simply named them with the greeks he can have done them no injury whatever disparity soever there may be betwixt them and plutarch does not entirely oppose them to one another there is no preference in general he only compares the pieces and circumstances one after another and gives of every one a particular and separate judgment wherefore If any one could convict him of partiality, he ought to pick out some one of those particular judgments, or say, in general, that he was mistaken in comparing such a Greek to such a Roman, when there were others more fit and better resembling to parallel him to. End of section 34 Reading by Malone